My name is Yuri Lowenthal. My name is Travis Sintel. And you are awaited. You are awaited is a Mad Max Fury Road podcast where Yuri Lowenthal and myself watch four minutes at a time of Mad Max Fury Road and talk about it. But today we have a special guest that is far superior, even I would be so bold as to say better than watching four minutes of the film. Which is, I know, a bold claim. It's but a I bold like claim, it's, but I'm going to stand by it as well. I think this gentleman holds it up. Uh, so let's just get into it. Uh, let's let's start with. Uh, let me let me get clear on the pronunciation of your name. Is it Matt Boog? Matt Baug? Matt. Matt Matt Bow actually. Matt yep. Bow. Well, bow. Like like yes. the like the bow of a tree. Only minus the bow H. The, yeah, like bow of a ship. Bow of a tree. Or bow. Of, okay. Ah. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Matt Bow uh, built a lot of the the props uh, that you see on Fury Road. Something that we. Are constantly commenting on in uh, on the show uh, the the detail and the way in which in which they they tell story and uh, enrich character without a, a single word spoken. Ladies and gentlemen, straight from <laughs> Sydney, Matt Bow. Hi everyone. Hi everyone. Uh, thanks for joining um, us today. Oh yeah, no, it's great to be here. Um, yeah, look, I agree with you guys with the the whole prop thing. It's especially with this movie. Particularly, I think uh, any science fiction or um, you know fantasy-related film, um, the props are like a major part of it. Like it helps sell the world so much if everything is believable. So yeah, yeah. it was a it was a big challenge this film. Yeah, and something that uh, that 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 hooked us immediately and 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 uh, separately when we when we originally watched the film, um, the, the the attention to detail and the just the how how enriched the world became with every little thing that we saw made us want to freeze frame uh, at at every point in the movie and maybe even do a podcast where we just watch four minutes of time so we could dedicate more appreciation to those sort of things. So so we're really excited to talk to you today. And I'm sorry I have to say it's it's almost Halloween. It's a sat it's we're recording on on a Saturday evening. And, uh, and every time I turn to look at Travis, he is dressed head to toe as a skeleton. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'm dressed as a skeleton. It's I a little promise, distracting for everybody. I promise I will post a photo even before this episode goes up. Yeah, I had to show up. And, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of the day He looks here, more Matt. like a war boy than he's yeah. ever looked. <laughs> Matt, listen. Have you, the, have you got the skull as well? I have a he's, skull. I have a skull cap on. Um, it's, not a, it's not good. I don't want to act like it's good. It's just the way it is right now. Um... But I was not going to cancel on you. I was like, you know what? Some plans came up. I am I'm I'm balancing all these plans to come talk to Matt, and then I'm going to go back to those things. So I'm half skeletonized currently, which it's, is not it's, cool. it's pretty impressive. Or I'm just getting propped up from our our props discussion. Right? It, it, it's your method. Absolutely. You're, it's all about you know dressing up and getting into character. Exactly. Me- method podcast. Method podcast. Um, <laughs> well, Matt, let me let me launch into a, a general question um, that that I'm super curious about, and this is some. There's some version of this question has been asked to Mark Mangini and and um, a couple of our, our people, Mark Sexton for sure. Uh, there is a, a navigation, I think, in sci-fi between verisimilitude and cool factor. Um, and a yes. lot of films, I think, go too far into the cool factor, and you think, well, that's just not practical. It's a super bitchin' toy or whatever. How did you navigate that? What were the conversations like with George? And and are you sort of are there any battles that you fought along the way that you think are interesting to talk about? 
Yeah, well, absolutely. Look, the, the probably the most important prop that I built, which definitely touches on that, is Charlize's robotic arm, the Furiosa arm. Um, now, that one was a huge negotiation just because it had such um, a long back history, like a lot of the things that have been planned for the film. Um, that prop in particular went through a lot of different versions Um Everyone had an opinion about how it should look and how it should function. Um, and initially it was more like a weapon. Um, it had like more blades and all sorts of different other functionality. But um, we ended up refining it down to being pretty much just a replacement hand. So that's one thing. Like it looks cooler as a, as a weapon and this crazy thing that's going to like save the day. But ultimately, I think the, for the focus of the film, a more practical approach was required to sell it as a thing. Mm-hmm. So um, it was really kind of, I suppose, dumbed down a little bit from like a fantastical thing and really tried to just be blended in rather than make a real big deal about it. And mm-hmm. I think that really helps sell the prop as a thing. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Like, is, is, do you think it worked like as yeah. a prop? Uh, yeah, agreed 100%. Every, every time uh, yeah. there's that negotiation, uh, and the reason I even asked that question is that we, we continue to be marveled by it. We, we're in episode 40-something of this podcast, and we're almost through the film now. We've sort of paid close attention to a lot of the details, especially the props, as Yuri said, and we'll get more into that. But but there, the choice always seems to have been made to favor the world building and the story over you know, making a quick, cool thing for the sake of making a quick, cool thing. And obviously there's enough cool things in the film that we know you're capable of doing that, but to to let the story and character drive the construction of the world in every department seems this remarkable restraint. And what you just said, it sounds like you had to restrain yourself from making extra cool stuff to make something that ultimately functions better and is still, let's be honest, super fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, I think that's probably the best example. There's heaps of other examples of where we did tone tone things down in order for it to just be a little bit more believable as a thing in the world. Mm -hmm. But the arm certainly is something that was actively discussed, like, uh, at length. Um, I, I came into the point where Charlize's arm was being developed kind of late in the piece, um, uh, like a whole, whole bunch of different people had had a go at it. Um, my boss, Bert Bales, who was like the head of the props department, had had a go. Um, the Weta Workshop over in New Zealand had had a go. Um, even even um, George himself, with through frustration, I think, <laughs> had had a go himself. Um, and him and Peter Pound, one of the storyboard artists, mm-hmm. had made a prototype of an arm. So there was there ended up being about five or six maybe even seven different versions of the arm before I got involved. And then they kind of threw them all at me and I tried to take the best bits of all of them and to create like uh, a new version that kind of, yeah, like all of the thinking that had gone into all of the different versions was quite different. So it was my job was to try and amalgamate them all together into one final awesome concept. And that was um, a head, complete headache. But um, I'm sure. Yeah. We got there in the end, so it's cool. How much of that conversation going in uh, to that uh, compiling all the different details was about functionality and how much of it was about aesthetics? Um, It was equal, I think. Like the aesthetics of it, obviously the the arm had to fit into the world um, in the sense that it needed to be built from found objects and Mm -hmm. it needed to have multiple functions and it needed to look like it was hacked together by 
the character, you know, with not too much technology. Um, mm-hmm. There's obviously that fantastical element to it, which is like, how does she actually control sure. the arm? And there's that whole, you know, you've just got to believe it really. Um, it's not like it's an actual real realistic thing, I right. suppose. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, it, it was always... Um, uh, the balance between aesthetics, um, but the functionality again, like the original, the original hand. Uh, probably the best example would be the Weta one. The Weta um, that got delivered to me was very steampunk in look, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, there was elements of that arm that were uh, specifically made to be the arm if you know what I mean, uh, as right. opposed to being repurposed pieces of junk. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So they kind of went off brief a little bit, um, which meant that it didn't really fit in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's what my job was, was to take elements of the wetter design and keep the great stuff that they'd done, but bring it more aesthetically into the world um, mm-hmm. by using found objects, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it reflects that, definitely. I've always uh, looked at the... I mean, yeah, there is a certain amount of sort of belief you have to put in it, and I think that there is enough reality to it that we that we do buy in. Uh, I always look at the, the little shoulder pad uh, top part, and there's sort of a little thing sticking out of it. It's almost like a uh, some sort of actuator or something like that, and I always look at that and I go, I wonder what that has to do with it, but... Yeah, um, but you so you, it, you know it, it allows you to tell stories about it and 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 believe in it at the same time. Yeah, um, that little bit that sticks out of the top pad is actually an electric um, motor, or sorry, a petrol motor for an aeroplane. Um, and if it was running, that George always kind of thought that it would be cool. There was a scene that was cut, I think, where um, she unhitches the trailer from the back of the truck um, because it's stuck. Uh, in that scene, she was going to have like a bit of a transformer arm and whip out like a uh, like a blade on it that was going to sever a pipe or something. We never did it, um, but she was going to start the little motor up on her shoulder. Uh-huh. Um, so it had like a little pull, like you know when you're starting a lawnmower or something, and yeah, you've got the so little cool. handle to like give it a kick over, and then that was going to kick in the extra function of the arm. You know, so there's little details like that. Some of the stuff obviously didn't get used. So, yeah. Sure. Are, are there were there any props? Any but aside from the arm that yeah. uh, that you built specifically for that that ended up not making the cut of the film, or that you you really wish had had been in there that we could have gotten to see. <laughs> Or did, um, or did not get obviously uh, featured always as much. With any film, a whole bunch of stuff that's made that doesn't actually feature. Look, there's a couple of little things. Um, Colin, the designer, Colin Gibson, mm-hmm. he uh, got me to make a uh, what would you call it? I don't know. It was like a little clockwork device. Uh, capable was meant to have made um, in the in the shape of uh, the Immortan symbol, um, and. It was like I tore the center out of a uh, an alarm clock and made this little thing out of wire, um, and you wind it up and the little mouth kind of on it goes like so. It was wow. like a he was saying it was kind of symbolic of the Immortan lying uh-huh. and just being full of shit basically. Yeah. Um, but it was something that she just whipped up so that she could present it to Nux to make him feel bad. Not, not as bad about like screwing up all the time. <laughs> wow. Um, it was like a little present that she'd made out of junk 
to hand to him. So I made that and I thought it was really beautiful and kind of interesting and kind of a weird prop to make and put in the film. But it was just, I suppose, um, illustrating the resourcefulness of the characters mm-hmm. and that they could make something out of nothing. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. And that was cool, but that didn't make it in. It's in the book, actually. I think there's an Art of Mad Max Fury Road book. And yes. It's, it's in there. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we, have, we have it uh, right, right next to us right now. I'm looking um, through it now. Please, please, t- please tell me that you still have that in your garage or in your closet somewhere. Um, no, look, a lot of the stuff, it just gets, especially when we're over in Africa, it would, it would, I would make it on my desk and I would hand it over to the prop master and it would just disappear into the ether and I would ah, never see it again. That, so, break, that um, breaks my no, heart. Unfortunately, a lot of stuff is um, either yeah, still over there in Africa or just gone. I'll, I'll, ch- I'll check eBay later. <laughs> um, <laughs> give, give it, we may not be the best podcast hosts, I'm realizing, because I have a, a more base question to ask you, Matt, that I should have asked you before, and I'm sorry. When you were talking about the, the idea that you had to rip out the middle of an alarm clock, I thought to myself, who thinks to do that? Um, would you tell us a little bit about your background, maybe, just to tell us, our listeners how you got here and how you came to this film? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I studied um, mechanical engineering um, and failed kind of thing. I then went on to try and do sculpture and I ended up studying industrial design, um, which led me to try and have a design career here in Australia. But our manufacturing industry is slowly dying over here. Everything's being made in China and everywhere else in the world. So it was kind of hard to Mm -hmm. have a design career here. So I ended up kind of shifting my focus towards um, the entertainment industry, which obviously has a constant need for creativity. So that's where I've ended up. I, um, I moved to Sydney to work for Walt Disney um, Animation. I worked for them for many years as an in-between animator. Mm-hmm. And um, just being in the film industry, I like Disney, obviously their, um, their studios all closed down. Um, their uh, the hand drawn animation aspect of it anyway, yeah. and when they bought and um, took over Pixar, and their their company kind of shifted towards three D. So I, I love drawing; it's like one of my passions, and that was um, then an exit for me. When they all went digital, I was like, I'm not really interested anymore, and um, left that and was floundering around trying to find um, something to do here in Sydney related to um, drawing and I found storyboarding um, mm-hmm. for ads and commercials and things and that's how I got involved in the film industry. And then, yeah, from there it was like just storyboarding and then uh, I would be working with the filmmakers and they go, wow, we need this fantastical thing that you've just drawn and I go, well, I could make that for you. Uh-huh. And they go, really? And then so I would then get involved uh, like with the pre-production process and then they'd go, oh, wow, this is cool. And then I'd go, well, I suppose you need me on set as well to operate it. And so then I'd be on set as well. And so that's, I suppose, my where I found my niche yeah. between like imagination, drawing things and coming up with concepts and then physically realizing them. And I suppose that would be my talent um, yeah. is to be able to take a drawing or an idea in a script and then be able to kind of come up with something that's going to work on screen. Not not everybody does both of the. I would argue that most people either does you know they, they either do the design part or the the actualization part, and you have uh, managed to do both. This this is uh, it's it's truly uh, remarkable what you do. Well, thank you. Uh, well, yeah, you're, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> um, how much time? I you know we we often talk about 
or it's often discussed how how long this film was in production or in you know pre-production and then in production um you know going on 15 years for you know for for some people when were you brought in and how how much time did you have to to build because the the film is literally crammed full of amazing detailed props and things and I can only imagine that that didn't happen overnight. Can you can you discuss sort of the, the timeline for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, the first place that I was involved with, um, I got hired and we were in a, a workshop in Villawood in, in Sydney. And in this workshop, it was uh, probably, I think, what year would it have been? 2012, I think, was the date on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was involved with the film basically for three years from wow. when I was involved to when it was um, when we wrapped. Um, and so they were well into production of the cars when I got involved. Um, my first job on, on the film was working in the motorbikes. Yes. So I, I helped build um, some of the Rock Rider bikes, the Gastown bikes, yeah. and the Vavolini bikes. That was my, my first kind of introduction to the film. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so timeline-wise, yeah, that was the first, that, that's, that's it. I was involved for three years. But the film obviously has been in development for, I think it was closer to 15 years. Yeah. So. I'm kind of just brought in at the manufacturing end when all the all the bugs had been worked out as far as like script writing and money and you know all the production and, and elements. Y- and yet you were involved for three years, <laughs> right. and and most films you know would would sort of be pre-production to end of you know production in inside a year. So so <laughs> absolutely, it's a, like it's yeah. like usually three months, four months yeah. build, you know, for making things. But yeah, so we had like. 10 times the amount of time. But as you can tell with the film, it it kind of needed it to sell it. So, yeah. yeah. It really did. Can I ask you a quick bike question, Matt? Are you going to ask me? Yuri has this, I would call it an obsession with this one particular plot element that every time it comes up in conversation, he kind of loses his mind a little bit. There's a, (laughs) not to geek out or fanboy out here, but there's a, there's a line where they say, uh, we can ride 160 days in that direction on these bikes. And Yuri says, that's impossible. You couldn't ride 160 days on a motorcycle without refueling or even have to carry some fuel with them. Can you speak to that? I completely agree. <laughs> okay, good. Don't tell him that. I'm never going to hear the fucking end of it, Matt. It's terrible. Sorry, man. Sorry. I, well, it, but it's true. Look, there was, there was a couple of the bikes which had tank modifications, and there was a couple of them that had, like, extra tanks built on them and stuff like that. But realistically, like, I ride a motorbike, and, yeah, yeah you do a couple hundred K, and you're out. That's it. And where'd that number come from? Justified. It's like, ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, where'd that number come from? How'd yeah, that happen? It, yeah, it seems like a very specific number and everything else really in this film it, of course obviously we're we're in a made-up world you know a, a fantasized yeah. you know imagined yeah. world but but all the the, the detail everything really holds up like i buy everything and then that that number comes up 160 days and i'm like nothing could run for 160 days if, if yeah out into the waste i don't know i don't know mm. I, that I, is a bit vague yeah, yeah it's a bit bending space and time yeah. right but, but, I, but I, I'm happy to he, accept it now that you have said that. Yuri is beaming right now, Matt. He's like, you're giving him a Christmas <laughs> gift. It's ridiculous. Um, I want to say to listeners, uh, we've referenced this before. Matt, I think, gave us the best email 
we've ever oh, received. Yes. Do you yes. want to quote from it, Yuri? I will. Uh, I, I don't have time to pull it up, but I will. Uh, I will paraphrase. Well, there's one line in particular that got us really amped up. Matt. Yeah, we had. Uh, you know, when we're talking about the the map that, uh, and and you know what we're talking about, Matt, because he wrote us the email. But we're talking about the map he's making after they've met the Vavolini, and you see him. He's he's using his own blood to. And and I paused and I said I said to Travis I said. Or you said, do you think they used actual blood? Yeah. And I said... I was almost convinced they must have. I said, I said, no, I don't think so. But wouldn't that be amazing? And then uh, when we contacted you about the show, you went and listened to an episode or two, and you wrote us an email, and you said, not only is that actual blood, it's my blood. <laughs> and I have, I have never been happier to receive an email about anything, I don't think. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, that was a bit of a rush prop as well. Like I got given this scrap of fabric and was asked to turn it into his map. And then I, I got briefed roughly that it needed to look like a um, like a pseudo military map in the sense of like symbols, like cardiographic kind of lines, mm-hmm. but also pretty rough and symbolic, not like an accurate person that has done it because right. he's crazy so some would even nice, say mad yep. yeah <laughs> there's a nice mix of kind of real but not real thing and um, and they did brief me that he was going to be drawing on it in blood so I'm like well I got this scrap of fabric I had no idea what blood would look like on this to paint it on so yeah I, um, I cut myself to put some blood on the map to see what it would look like to get the coloring right There is this sense uh, as we, so this, this really strange idea we had to do this podcast, um, has, has trickled into doing interviews with people from the film. And one of the things that we've learned or sort of developed this theory over time is that everyone involved in the film is pretty obsessive and pretty, (laughs) pretty driven in their own particular ways. I'll say I'm making the sound nicer than maybe I, (laughs) but, but you know, uh, Greg Van Borsum and, and Mark Sexton and, uh, certainly, Mark Mangini all have this like desire to to be to drive themselves to excellence um, in a way that they don't necessarily have to um, for fiduciary reasons or for any other reason. It's just they become obsessed with the idea and making the right thing. And it sounds like I mean the reason we sort of clicked into your email is that there's echoes of that with you too. And we think it's like the reason we think it's the reason the, the movie is so good is that George Miller harnessed this group of obsessive people who wanted to get it right and wanted to get these ideas right for the sake of the ideas, which seems to be rare. We work in Hollywood and it's not it's certainly not always the case. Um, do, did you find that with the co-workers that you had? Um, and do you want to re- rebute uh, or like dispute that claim that you're obsessive? <laughs> No, not at all. Not at all. Like we were, I think, a very carefully handpicked group um, of people for specifically that reason, 100%. Like um, uh, I felt like when I became involved with the film that I had found my people. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> for want of a better word, like we, yeah, it just gelled. We had the most amazing team of people on every level. Like, uh, and it wasn't just... Um, you know, the prop department, it was every level, every single part of that group was like gelled really well. And we all had that obsessive compulsive behavior. Absolutely. Um, and I think the environment that we were then thrown into also really kind of, um, exacerbated that condition just because, um, to, to give you a good example, um, when we started, when I started working on the motorbikes, um, Colin Gibson, the designer, like we didn't get given any drawings or any of the art materials that you see in any of the books. Um, we were basically 
I was taken out into the backyard of this massive uh, workshop and there was maybe a hundred wrecked vintage cars um, that had just been trashed and Colin took me around and said, okay, this is where you get your stuff from. We're not going to buy anything. You're not going to have anything else. This is where you shop basically. So get your angle grinder and get busy. And so that's what we did. We all had this boneyard to pick over, which was the, these wrecked vintage cars. And that's what we built everything from. God um, damn it. I want to say uh, something you just, real quick. you just made the movie better for me. Yeah. Same man. Like there, there's this, there's this thing. And this, this came up a lot in the conversation with Mark Mangini is that, is that, you know, when Yuri and I saw the film for the first time, and this has been echoed by a lot of people we've spoken to on a sort of micro and a macro level that, there is a sense on a first viewing. Of course, you cannot get all this on a first viewing. And of course, all the level of attention and detail um, that's been put into the film, you can't get on a first viewing. And yet, one of the things we've discovered is that there is this subconscious absorption of information that you get as a viewer um, that that uh, I think must delight you guys. That there, the, these attention to details things it, it gives the viewer a sense of... In the back of their head, there is this sense of reality that informs the storytelling that, that we didn't understand, honestly, until we got into talking about it. And it's a thing that you can't necessarily guarantee will happen while making the film. But there must be no. this delight that you guys have of knowing that this, all this work you've put in fucking paid off mad dividends in the subconscious viewing and, and, you know, and landing the story for the viewer. Absolutely. Look, a lot of other projects that I've been involved with, there's never been that extra level, whereas we had the time and we had the interest to to do that. Like, And it was amazing to be able to add that extra level um, of kind of, as you're saying, like subconscious, make the, make the world really feel lived in and sell everything about it. Um, I think it does add such a massive aspect to the film um it's not a two-dimensional film at all like we and there's so much stuff that didn't make it on screen mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter because it's still there and the characters also know it's all there too like they lived in those trucks and those cars for almost a year and they they lived it look we all lived it man we were we were living that film we were in the desert we were hacking stuff together we were trying to survive it was mad like it was actually mad yeah. and we all did go a little bit mad i think so and yeah but that graveyard like the the graveyard going back to that just for a second because i was one of many prop makers um we would fight over stuff as well so we would get out in the backyard <laughs> and you would see some awesome piece of bumper or something on one of these cars and you'd cut it off and someone would steal it from you <laughs> and then you would see it on their bike or on some other car and you're like, you bastards. And so there was this kind of desperation and you would, I would quickly learn to like, if I found something cool to bury it under my desk somewhere or hide it in the workshop. And wow. so there was this real culture of, of the apocalypse, I suppose, as much as there could have been in our workshop where we were fighting for things like trophies to put on our vehicles to make them cooler. This is what I love. We I, I do this other podcast and we we watch we just rewatched the Blair Witch Project, um, and 
One of the things about that film that really struck me is that they had this core concept and they leaned into it 100%. And in my opinion, that movie works better than all the other found footage movies that have come out because you know they have uh, only onboard microphones for the sound. They have all the camera angles suck. It's, it's as if this happened, here's how it would be shot and here's how it would sound. And no other movies in the found footage genre have done that since. And the idea that if you lean into making the film in a, in a holistic way, you get unexpected benefits. And so one of the unexpected ben benefits of this is that you had to fight for piecemeal things. And uh, if there's one of those in the, in the yard, it's going to be maybe on the coolest car. And it, 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 that's not something you can go into in, in a design sense and plan for. It's just something that happens if you lean into the idea of the film while creating the film. It's really remarkable. Well, I think that I think that Colin Gibson, the the production designer, I think that was. I think I did feel a little bit like a rat in a maze with him. Like I think he he played us a little bit, obviously to massive awesome advantage. Um, <laughs> in the fact that we, by the end of it, I really felt like I'd been in some kind of weird medical experiment. Um, <laughs> that's so and, good. And yeah, that's that was his thing. That was his way of of creating stuff within the aesthetic of the film but you know letting us play as well and making us feel like we were a part of the creation process um and by putting us in that position where we had to fight for everything that we needed uh, that really amplified the aesthetic absolutely yeah yeah did you kill anyone on the you know i don't know i don't want you to incriminate yourself but did you have to kill anyone to get something you wanted on this film no, no, no deaths, no of, deaths. Okay, um, of course you would yeah. say that. That's uh, yeah. you know, we'll 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 leave it at that. From everybody we've uh, we've talked to who's worked on the film, one of the things that keeps coming up is how one of uh, the reasons that George is so good at, at what he does is he chooses people, he hires people who are really good at what they do, and then trusts that they do that. He's not a he's not a micro manager. Um, and it and it seems to once again have have paid off immensely. Did you did you also? I mean, maybe you were working more more closely with with Colin and some of the other you know the, the design people on the design element. But do, do you feel that 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 resonates with you as well? Absolutely. Look, I, I did mainly work with Colin. He was my go-to um, contact on the film. Um, but I did work with George on some of the, the more, uh, like I suppose, hero props, um, like the Furiosa arm. Mm -hmm. um, and, but uh, George wasn't involved in hiring. Colin was more involved with hiring me. And absolutely, like, yeah, it was, it's, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. How did Colin find you? Question mark. Um, I, <laughs> how did he find me? That's a good question. Um, I have been trying to get my foot into the industry, into the, into the feature industry. This was the first film I ever worked on. What? Um, well, it's downhill from here, man. I'm so sorry that you came in. <laughs> it's not as much fun. as well right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, I was trying to get my foot into the feature industry. I'd done a lot of shorts. I'd done a lot of, um, uh, like kind of smaller projects in Sydney and I'd been just busting a gut trying to get an for my and just happened to be working on a on a music video with um, uh, with someone who was connected to the film and they recommended me and it was word of mouth like obviously as a lot of things are in in the film industry um, and that's that's how it was just purely purely coincidence and 
I had actually got the number to to drop my CV into the um, to the office and managed to call on a day when my CV was on top of the pile. Stop. And it was meant to be. This was meant to be yeah. that. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, and as once I got in there, I was on probation for a couple of weeks just to see if I it was who I said I was, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and after I'd gone through the trial process, yeah, it was like, all right, let's let's jump in. Um, but definitely, I I really felt like uh, it was a it was a psychological test as well as a, a physical test to see whether you would fit into the group. Because sure. the, the workshop in Villawood was very unique to every other film that I've worked on in the sense that all of the different aspects of the film, like the special effects department, the, um, the panel beaters, the mechanics, um, the prop department, um, the painters, like everyone was all under one roof and you could see what everyone was doing. So you could kind of see the film laid out in front of you under one roof and all of the people that were involved with it and how they were affecting the outcome so you could kind of watch all of that unfold and that kind of then informed you with any of your questions so if mm -hmm. I had a an aesthetic question I could just look around the room instead of having to wander into Colin's office and rifle through drawings right everything was in front of you and I think it was a that was a stroke of genius as well having all of us as a group in an environment rather than like um, I've just finished working on Alien Covenant here in Sydney wow. as well. Like, mm. And we're all very much in our little little workshops. You know, we're all broken up into our little petitions mm -hmm. and we don't really get to see the film as a whole. And for me, I, that's, that's what Fury Road was. One of the reasons why it was like a cohesive thing is because we're all working together. Yeah. If I had a problem with something I was working on, I could just wander over into the steel department and go and chat with them. And, you know, I, you could see the whole film kind of taking shape. It was amazing. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think this film is a, is a lesson to any, you know, anyone making a, making a film, but to studio films and, and why a lot of them suck, in my opinion. Um, they should really take a take a page out of this film's book. Um, something to to jump on what you just said, uh, as there's so many visual elements in the film that need to get built. Now some of them are vehicles, and some of them are weapons, and some of them are you know you know costumes. Uh, was there was there sort of a line that you're like, oh well, that's costumes, I can't do that, or did you work together? Was there sort of nothing you couldn't add on to? Were you building things that would apply to costumes as well as vehicles and weapons and other various and sundry props? Um, well, we, we were in our little departments. Like, I, to, to begin with, I was in the motorcycle department, but then when we ran out of motorcycles to, to finish and we were happy with them all, um, that's when I got repurposed. Um, mm -hmm. The next thing I did after that was be moved onto the Doof guitar. Um, we were getting then, to that. So that was... This is a perfect, yes, we, we were, speaking of hero props, we were going to ask you about that one. Let's, let's jump right in. Let's talk about the Duff guitar, okay. Um, the Duff guitar got given to me, yeah, after we'd finished the bikes and um, Colin was obviously looking for something else to put me on and this, they, they'd hired a whole bunch of guys from overseas, these sculptors who were, worked in found objects. Obviously, they obviously trawled the net and found people who worked in, in the junk medium um, and 
got a few of those guys on board. This one particular guy, Michael Ullman, was um, the, the sculptor who put the doof guitar together as a thing. Um, Michael was only on board, though, for a, a certain amount of time, and then he had to leave. Um, and then the project was given to me. Um, and Michael, being a sculptor, made this amazing thing, but it wasn't a prop per se. Um, it couldn't be played and... Uh, you couldn't really pick it up and use it as a prop. It was very fragile and um, looked pretty, but um, wasn't a functional thing. And mm -hmm. George's big thing is that everything had to work on wow. the show for real. So if you're going to have something um, like the guitar, George's insistence was that the, the guitar actually worked and played. Um, so that was my job was to kind of um, deconstruct Michael's uh, sculpture uh, and then make it so that it was a functional flame-throwing, playing guitar. Yeah. It's really interesting, Matt. It's exactly what you said you did for these design elements early in your career, which is to take a fantastical drawing and say, I can actually make that if you want. So yes. in, in a weird way, you were primed for this sort of gig, you know? And they couldn't have known that probably when they first had you. Um, it's, it's and, crazy. And, and, I, and I have to say that they may not have known when they were building it how iconic it would become to, to, to the film and to pop culture, I would argue, uh, you know, as, as, a, as an entirety. Um, but it says a lot about how, what they thought of, of you and your talents that they handed that particular project to you. Because I don't think it, you know, I think in, in, the, in the hands of somebody else, it would, it would not be what, what it was. Now, did you work with, did you know that, because uh, the, 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 the player uh, is, is uh, Iota, is that right? Iota, yes, yeah. yes. Um, did you work with Iota when you were designing it, or did you build just the best guitar you could, and then he came in later? Yeah, uh, no, it was a, a later thing. I mm -hmm. I built the guitar in Australia, um, and Iota wasn't really involved with the project until we got to Africa. So I pretty much built it. I just needed a lot of tweaking by the time I got over there. Um, and so, no, I didn't really deal with Iota it was, at all. He complains incessantly about how crap the guitar was. Uh, <laughs> um, and I wholeheartedly agree with him. It's pretty hard to make a flamethrowing, double-necked, awesome guitar that also plays like a, a mandolin. So, right. Um, using using, all, using all parts. Heard, to be honest, all I heard from him was complaints about it. But... Um, I don't know. As you say, it's, at the end of the day, it is a prop, and it didn't really matter how it sounded, as long as it did sound right. And um, it, and I imagine, uh, I imagine when it's you know when it's the wasteland and we're we're working post apocalypse that you you don't you can't just go to Guitar Center and and buy the things that you need to build a great guitar. Sure, <laughs> I kind of, I'm kind of surprised that given given Motley Crue, Poison, and and Guns N' Roses, no one had invented that before. <laughs> when you see it, you're like, oh yeah, of course that should have happened in '88 or '89. Why did this not happen? So absolutely, I'm happy kind of, you guys got there. Well, it's just uh, it was, yeah, I agree. It should have happened in the '80s. Mm. So wait, so you were on set also, right? Doing things on the fly in addition to having three years of pre-production or two years of pre-production, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. So um, well, we built kind of everything that we could. And then once the film actually started rolling, um, the main thing that I was attached to was the arm um, mm -hmm. because it was such a specialized thing. And uh, it was quite fragile as well. So I was there with Charlize to help her 
with any issues that arise with the with the arm. So that was kind of I got stuck with that once it was once we got rolling. It's a really good thing to be stuck with. I, something yeah. you said earlier, really, really, I want to bounce off of because you said we got the bikes to the point we were happy with all of them, and I realized you know we, you and I both live in Hollywood and, and we we work in film and. I've never heard someone say, yeah, I had enough time to do that and moved on and I'm quite happy with it. Like, I've never heard a set designer <laughs> or a screenwriter or a director say the sentence you said so casually. And I'm like, I've, I've been mulling it over because I'm like, I can't believe he said that. Like he got, not, and not just a key prop, the back, you know, sort of, not, not, they're, they're used in the second half of the film and they, they're happy with all of them. They moved on. And um, are, there, are there props on set then uh, or, or moments with the arm where you felt like I had to improvise like the map right if I would have had time I might have done it differently Did you feel rushed on set in a way that you didn't in the pre-production process for specific things? Well, well the bikes they needed to be really solid because there was a lot of stunts involved with them So we needed to kind of resolve them aesthetically to a point so that we could do a stunt safety pass over the bikes so that any of the ones that were being used for crashes or jumps um, were really kind of then redesigned for that. Um, so there was quite a lot of um, that kind of process going on. And when we got to the end of that, like the stunt testing, um, we were quite happy with them. And that's the one thing that we did have on this film was some time. Um, we did have the time to do that stuff properly, which is unheard of generally, as mm -hmm. you say. Um, as, as far as the arm goes, uh, yes, it was a rushed thing because when I got given it, we were, I think we would have been close to six weeks out from principal photography when I got the green light on that. Wow. And uh, that's not a lot of time. And so, yes, the arm was definitely a rushed thing. But mm. look, I'd been working on the film at that point with some pretty serious stuff for a few years then. And so I was kind of in the groove. Um, and so I could felt like I could do a lot in those six weeks and yeah, managed to pull it off. So yeah, there were some things that were rushed and some things that weren't. Um, the arm was one that was not rushed because it had such a long developmental history, mm -hmm. um, which as I said, I think I was, I was excluded from, which I think was to, helped me in a way because when I got presented with all the different versions I could kind of not have any history of it or any mm. attachment to any of it mm -hmm. I was a little bit detached from it so mm. I could just purely look at it from a functional perspective and just cut to the chest and just use the stuff that was good um, whereas I think a lot of the other people maybe who were involved with the arm had ideas about how it could be and were attached to certain aesthetical looks or functions. Um, so that meant, you know, when you make something and you kind of get attached to it or if you spend so much yeah. time playing with something that y you own it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it needed to be given to someone like me who, were, who wasn't attached um, to resolve it. Yeah. yeah. Without naming names, and you can you can decline this question if you like. But um, are there any uh, memorable disagree disagreements uh, in terms of design that came up that became especially potent or sort of long lasting in the process? Look, to be honest, not really. Um, 
uh, one of the things, oh, maybe one with George. All right, here we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to incriminate myself. No, no, no. Um, uh, again, the, the arm was always the one that everyone was kind of debating about. The Duff guitar was a given. The motorbikes were a given. Like, it was all quite straightforward, really. Um, uh, the arm was the one that was always, um, that we had issues with. Um, George wanted to put, as you will see, obviously, in the film, a spanner quite um, prominently mm -hmm. um, in the design and um, more than I suppose my opinion it was Colin and and George always fighting they have like this healthy relationship of um, pitching stuff to each other and I think that they almost were polar opposites on a lot of things just purely to be of difference so that things did get discussed um, but George was obsessed with having um, obvious tools on on the arm so that the arm was made out of like spanners or um, you know uh, things that you would fix a car with mm -hmm. um, and that was definitely a point of contention because I personally felt that it was a bit too cheesy and a bit too obvious mm -hmm. um, and I think Colin did as well um, so we were constantly arguing with George about that and he just did not give up he did not give ah. up his obstinate and just kept pushing and kept pushing and we kept changing it and tweaking it and showing him different versions with the spanner that were kind of hidden and kind of not there and he would always <laughs> crack the shits and get us to change it back <laughs> and um and eventually he won he he got the uh, spanner on the on the arm and to his credit i think that uh it was the right decision it made it obvious that the arm was made from found objects mm -hmm. um which was exactly what, whenever anyone talks to me about it, they go, wow, look, that's, there's a spanner on that. It's been made from a spanner. Good for you. And you said, yes, that was my idea. But yeah, that was definitely and, a bone of contention. And I have to say that, yes, George was right. Yeah. Well, for for, our, for our, uh, American viewers, I believe uh, a spanner in, in America is called a wrench. Yeah. Um, just uh, to we're going to translate your uh, your language. Sorry. <laughs> right. yeah. No, no, that's that, that that's perfectly fine. When uh, when it when it got to to Charlize working with the arm, did you was there a lot of constant tweaking on set? Like you'd give her the thing and she'd be like, ah, oh, it's rubbing me here, or I can't, I don't feel comfortable doing this. Can you can you tweak it here and there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, when we first, when I first did the first costume fitting, I think Charlize had got the shits with the whole process to a certain extent. They obviously tried a lot of the other designs on her, and a lot of the other designs were really, really heavy and really quite cumbersome and um, difficult to use and operate. Um, the difference between the one that I built and the ones that all came before, the ones that came before were all kind of puppeteered versions that would have had like an operator with them. Mm -hmm. But the one that I designed and gave to her to use was she could operate it herself. It's oh, wow. really just a gauntlet. It's just a glove that she could put on with an exoskeleton um, with some green screen mm -hmm. um, fabric on it. And it meant that it gave her her own arm so she was so pleased when we were in that first fitting and I tried it on her and god I was so nervous it was sure. terrifying um I can and imagine. she looked down at the arm and I kind of motioned to her you know what do you think and she was like it's totally badass <laughs> and you were you're, all your masculine endorphins just skyrocketed <laughs> through your body at that moment absolutely yeah and um and then she said but it's really heavy 
Um, well, she actually said it's it's really fucking heavy. Yeah, that's and I true. said, well, I'll make you a fucking light one then. <laughs> <laughs> and you had a friend for life at that moment. Exactly. That was the moment we bonded and that's we were mates fucking, after that. That's fucking great, man. So, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll sort of, as we're watching the film, we'll buzz by something and then have to back up and freeze frame on it. Or we'll freeze frame on uh, something by by accident and notice all the detail in the costumes, all these little things in, you know, in Morton Joe's armor, the, the, the medals that, that he's got the, uh, what there's a, there's a shot where you get to see a lot near when Max is convincing the, the Furiosa and the Vovolini to, to turn around and go back the other way. They're, they're all sitting on their bikes and they're all these little details, these little things attached to the costumes. And, and you look at them and they've all, they've, they all tell a story. And, and I think that, one of the when somebody watches this film and they say, "Oh well, it's just a chase; it doesn't have a story." I think they're used to being they're used to relying on dialogue, and you know, to tell them a story. And this this story tells it with with pictures, which is which is the way a, a film should do. Were were there any moments or any were you given any leeway with like the costume department? They would say, "Okay, here's our costume. Can you add anything to it?" or did you, you know, see something and go, wait a minute, I've got an idea? Um, look, Jenny Bevan, wonderful mm -hmm. costume designer, obviously. Um, I work with her a little bit, but mainly specifically just with the arm. We didn't, mm -hmm. as part of the props department, I, I, the, the arm was a crossover thing because right. it's a technical, obviously, metal object with, um, you know, I had to work with Andrew Jackson, the, uh, the visual effects supervisor as well because it had visual effects elements. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like a triadic thing there was the visual effects element there was mm -hmm. the prop element with me working with metal but then it was also incorporating incorporating the design into the pre-existing um furiosa costume um mm -hmm. so i whatever i did i had to work with jenny to blend it into that costume like all of mm -hmm. the strapping and mm -hmm. make it all mesh into one so i work with jenny in in that sense but as far as like all of the other costumes that was that was pretty much all of her realm yeah. So so when Colin Gibson is like, hey, I need you to go to Africa and spend every day with Charlize Theron intimately, you said, yes. oh, you asshole, I don't want to do that, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> you, you had to... Yes, that was my first response. I'm yes. sure. Did you tell your friends, like, you're never going to guess what I'm doing for the next <laughs> six months or whatever? That sounds like a pretty good deal you got there, man. It was a very good deal. And um, we had a little team there, Team Charlize. Um, we had great fun. It was amazing. Um, a couple of uh, a couple of specific props. I'm going to throw a couple of uh, specific props out there, and I'm going to have to ask if uh, if you had anything to do with them because they, they stood out. Um, sure. The the pedals of the vehicles, in in particular, the uh, the shoe sizing uh, pedal of the of the war rig, we we find fantastic. Um, the 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 baby mask on the back of that sort of lead polecats mask, or was that that I guess that's more of a costume thing. Um, yeah, the baby mask definitely yeah. was um, was Jenny um, mm -hmm. and her team. Mm -hmm. um, the pedal in the war egg, the to my knowledge, um, Chris Marinovich was one mm -hmm. of the guys that I work with. He's one of my best mates, and he he did a lot of the interiors of the cars uh -huh. uh, dressing. Um, which was a thing, and which was a whole job in itself. Sure. Um, like there's the the mechanics, obviously, and then the outside appearance. But all of the interiors got done on every single car as well, mm -hmm. wow. um, with toolkits and all all of this massive level of detail. But um, 
I'm not sure who in the the car dressing department was responsible for that particular thing, but um, I would I would has, I would say that Chris and maybe Katie um, were the ones that were involved with that. Was was that yeah. department was that department also behind the steering wheels? Because the steering wheels tell the story of the driver in every case. Absolutely, yeah. Chris made um, a couple of the steering wheels, and if you remember, you know the um, the scene with the um, the altar on yeah. the steering wheels. Yeah. That was all Chris Marinovich, my friend. Yeah, wow. he spent weeks and weeks and weeks making hundreds of different custom steering wheels from a pile um, of just, yeah random junk. Tell um, Chris we said killer work. Yeah, tell yeah, tell, yeah. tell him it's better. It's, tell him it's better than that stupid throne on Game of Thrones. <laughs> Yeah, do, do tell them that. You know what's crazy about that that um, the altar just for a moment is there's all these moments in the film that are a perfect hybrid of elevated genre and also gritty realistic genre, and the movie straddles this line throughout the entire film. And the altar's I think a great example of that is that the way it's shot is all you made a good point. It's almost Game of Thronesy. It's like this this mythical you know shot from beneath, very sort of well lit moment and yet it's extraordinarily practical because the people interacting with it are just doing their thing they they, they clearly have seen this every day and i think that al the altar is such a good perfect example of the tone of the film in one shot yeah i was i was discussing the altar the other day with someone and absolutely i i think it me personally i think it could have been made more of in the film i really love the idea of mm -hmm. the fact that the steering wheels are like the keys to the car yeah. um and as a as a as a worship thing the fact that you know uh, fuel and and everything is power you know the cars are powerful um and i think that was like the center of their universe you know that shrine um yeah, I think it's and it is. It's a practical thing. It's a again with the film. It was always taking these visual symbolic elements and making them practical. And the yeah. way that that shrine was practical was that it was the keys to the car. Yeah, it's a testament to the film, though. That, that the sentence you just said. Some we, I feel like a lot could have been made more of that. We've said that about a hundred every props. every little throwaway bit. Yeah, yeah. We really we. I mean, it just keeps coming up, and the fact that this movie has the ability and the confidence to move on from maybe amazing ideas so quickly uh, is 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 just a, a testament to the amount of of brainstorming and ideas that are just shoved into it. And that plays again, not to harp on this, but this subconscious storytelling beat. It plays because even though. There, there isn't more made of every moment. The, your, your subconscious gets inundated with tiny details, and it really, really, really affects the way you watch it. And I, it's not something you can plan. You can just hope for it, I think. And it really lands here, I think. Uh, I agree, and I think it, it makes me feel good about my job. It meant that those three years weren't put to waste. Yeah, <laughs> no. You, well, you got to hang out with Shelley's Throne. It wasn't put to waste. We, <laughs> we, we know that going into it, but also the movie's great too. So that's, that's uh, that. You were talking about uh, you know how how the film was shot and this mythic. Uh, there is uh, uh, the black and chrome version. You know, a black and white, a monochromatic version of this film that I know. George is talking about it. it's it's coming out. Uh, somebody actually posted a link the other day. They says you can stream it online, but we're waiting. There's a there's a West Coast premiere that's happening on November second, I think. And Travis and I are going to go. Was was through the process? Did was that a concern because George had originally conceived this in black and white? Was was there a uh, in the in the design element and you building things? Did was that taken into consideration or was that never really discussed? 
Um, no, absolutely. Um, I was always aware, well, once I got into it, aware of the fact that George, there was always a possibility that the film was going to be released in black and white. He'd always spoken about that. And um, I, I definitely was aware of that. Um, a lot of the design that I undertook as a result of that, I tried to give everything strong silhouettes, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. So it didn't really then matter what was going on, that the design would still be strong. Um, strong silhouettes with layers of detail mm-hmm. um, uh, so that uh, something looked lived in. Like with the bikes, for example, I tried to change the silhouette of the bike so that it wasn't a standard bike. Um, and when you looked at it, you would maybe do a double take um, just because maybe it wouldn't look like a bike a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Things like that. I was just trying to constantly... Um, change so that yeah the the coloring wasn't ever a huge thing and look we made so much of the film out of steel um everything was made with steel black and chrome um it was all welded together everything was solid everything needed to last you know 10 months in the desert um so it was all built to last and it was built from steel and whether that was color or black and white i you know i to me it it didn't really matter. It, did, yeah. it didn't matter. I think the look of the film, especially with all of the steel, and I think that's why they made a lot of the cars silver, mm-hmm. um, was so that they would ping. You know, you get the highlights, you get that beautiful black and chrome look. You, you know, yeah. when you photograph the, a shiny bumper on a, a like a an old car, that they're the colors. That's the color spectrum right there of that film. Um, yeah. The red tone of the dirt. And the, and the sand, the, the environment is where the color came from rather than the objects, you know? Yeah, yeah. right. Did you did you take anything home from the film? Is there any prized possession that you have that you can talk about without getting in trouble? Um, I, I, I do have a, uh, a version of the arm, which I built, which was the first version that I did, mm-hmm. um, which was more, Colin briefed me, and it was more a simplified version. The, the original version that I got shown from um, the uh, oh, sorry um, the wetter version mm-hmm. um, was very com- convoluted and very complex and in order to kind of sway George away from that look Colin got me to design an arm which was really simple it was like a really refined prosthetic arms uh, Colin gave me images of the Hutu and Tutsi conflict in wow. Rwanda and there were these guys that had like lost their limbs in um, in that conflict and they they'd made their own prosthetics out of bits of wire and random stuff but it was all really minimal and so he said what I want you to do is build something that's halfway between what these guys have got and oh, nice. the, the thing that Weta built and so I built this version of the arm which is like a hybrid um, and I built it so that you could wear it and actually operate it with the harness that was built into it. So as you hunch your shoulders forward, the claw on the front of it would open and huh. it's all functional and it all worked. So I was quite proud of that and yeah. it didn't make it into the film, but it, it did also help final design be realized because uh, it kind of showed George there was this really complex way of doing it but there was a really simple elegant way of doing it as well and we ended up somewhere in the middle I think with the final design 
You you have blown our. I wish you could see the looks on our faces right now. Yeah, and I know it's Skype, and technically well, we could do that, but but I, I love the mystery of it. Mine's like uh, a skeleton, so it's not uh, as <laughs> not quite not quite as impressive as maybe it could be. Uh, we're 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 up on, on on an hour here, and and I I would I would love to to sort of start start wrapping up and and uh, and thank you for sure. But uh, I have one wrap up question actually, Matt. That I, I, I honestly and I I just want to say this. I have 50 other questions. This has been really cool. Yeah, and it's, we might have to have a just, second round. Well, it's just you. a testament to, to the, the the way you think about it that that um, I didn't come in with so many. Uh, I had come in with a couple ideas of things I wanted to ask you, but I have talking to you has made me have a hundred more questions, which are it, it makes me very excited. But I'll I'll start to wrap up with this question, which is: Do you feel like your design aesthetic? has been inextricably shifted or changed as a result of working on the film? And have you found yourself relying on Mad Max ideas or lessons in in the work you're doing today? Um, I would say yes to that, definitely. Um, I went into Mad Max um, relying heavily on my drawing skills. Um, like I've always drawn everything. And I think drawings are a great kind of crossover medium from getting something out of your head onto the page and then it's on the page and then you can start to make it. Um, with Mad Max, I was encouraged more and more and more and felt more at ease with just jumping in without a drawing. Um, and I think that's something that definitely changed me through that film. I, I became more confident in, in just looking at things and, uh, and starting from there rather than having a drawing as a backup. So if anything of that film, it's taught me to um, think on my feet a bit more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I noticed on your IMDb uh, listing that there is, it's, it seems that there is, a, there is a short film about your work on props for Mad Max Root. Is that something that, that our listeners can, can track down and watch? Is that, is that available? Um, on IMDb, there was, I think, on the... Is it on the special features? It's on the special it's features on, DVD, okay. on the release of... Um, I think, I'm not sure which release it is that okay. has it, but it's called Tools of the Wasteland, I think, and it's yeah. interviews with a lot of the props guys uh, behind the scenes. And so, yeah, um, myself and a lot of my colleagues were interviewed for that. And, yeah, yeah, Great. definitely. If you check out the special features edition on the Mad Max DVD... Um, that's look for tools of the wasteland and that's where all that is absolutely man is there anything um you'd like to plug or anywhere anything our listeners can go find you on that you'd like support for or things that aren't getting enough tension that you'd like to plug uh, oh no look i'm cool man it's all good cool. um i have a, i have a website you can punch my name in if you want to have a look at that but um yeah Good because we really don't have any listeners. So. <laughs> yeah, my mom already knows who you are, so she says hi. Um, M a t t b o u g listeners. That's um, how you find him on the interwebs. And please go check out his work. Obviously, you guys love his work already, but there may be some other things you're unaware of that you can uh, scope out. Yeah, I guess Matt, that um, that wraps up our time. I think, sir. Yeah. Excellent. Thank mm, you for it's thank been you wonderful. For, thank yeah. you for making the time and doing the math. So that we could, because you were 18 hours ahead of us. Yeah. Um, Listeners, we relied on Matt to do the math for us because we, we, we're, we're, we're terrible at yeah, everything. Yeah, mad math. Mad math. There mad is. math. All right. We'll close on bad jokes. That's what we do, guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, there you go. My name is Yuri Lowenthal. My name is Travis Sintel. And that's Matt Bow. And you are awaited. Awaited.